if somebody owes somebody else money, for example, he borrowed money from him, so there is something known as a which means that the lender has a hold on the borrower's property, any property which he has at the time of the loan, such that he is able to collect the loan from that property. Let's say the borrower is not able to pay back the loan, so he would be able to snatch that property. And this is true even if the borrower had sold that property since the loan. He could snatch that property from the buyers and then the buyers can go back to the borrower and claim compensation. But the point is that the lender is able to snatch that property even once it has been sold. However, at least according to most, we saw an argument regarding the Kasuba. But with everything else and according to the Chachomim with regards to the Kasuba as well, this only applies to land. However, movable items known as materials Metaltalin, no one can have a hold on somebody else's metaltalin, only on their land. And because of that, if let's say Ruvain borrows money from Shimon and then Ruvain dies, so Ruvain's children, his sons, will inherit his property. And in a case where Ruvain did not have any land, so his sons only inherited movable items, if he hadn't yet paid back the loan, his children would not need to pay back the loan from that which they inherit because they didn't inherit any land so there is no achayis and chosim on what they inherited so they would not be obligated to pay back that loan of their father. The question of our Mishnah is whether that applies once the sons have taken that property which they're inheriting or even before. Now, in general, inheritance happens automatically as soon as the man dies. The property transfers to the ownership of his sons. But what about a case where Misha Mace, somebody died, Vehniach Isha, and he left behind a woman, a wife. So the woman here is considered to be the person who is owed money because she is owed the Kasuba, as well as that Uval Choiv. There's also somebody else who he had borrowed money from, and so he owed that money, Vyoshim, and also left behind inheritors, so his sons, let's say. And he had an item which he had deposited or he had lent to somebody else. And because it was in their domain, it was not transferred immediately and automatically to the domain of the inheritors. So now the question arises, who is more entitled to those items? Is it the inheritors because they should inherit everything automatically and they're not obligated to pay back the loans of their father since he didn't leave behind any land? Or do we say that since it's not yet come to them, so the woman or the other man who is owed money would be able to claim those items. Rabbi and Rabbi Tarifin says, it should be given to the weakest one of them. Out of the woman and the other man who is owed money, the one who is considered to be weaker, he would get it. So first we see according to Rabbi that they have more of a claim over the inheritors since it has not yet come to them. Now who out of those two is considered to be the weaker one? There are many different interpretations for this. We are going to understand that it refers to the one whose date written on their document saying that they are owed money is later. As we explained earlier, the concept of Achrayis Nechosim means that any property which he had after the loan was made, or after the Kasuba was written, she would be able to collect the loan from that property. But if five years ago that man had property and he sold it, and then he borrowed money from this man, certainly the lender has no right to the property which he sold earlier on. Which means that the later the date is, the less property they are likely to be able to collect from. And therefore, whosever date is written later is considered to be the weaker one. And so since they have less potential 
property which they would be able to collect from, they would receive these items. Now the reason why they are both considered to be weaker than the inheritors is because of what we said earlier, that in general once the inheritors have already inherited those items, nobody else can have any claim on the items, and therefore they are considered to be at a disadvantage in that they cannot make a claim against the inheritors. However, Rabbi Akiva says, in Madin, we don't have mercy in judgment, meaning when we're deciding what the halacha is, we don't look at who's weaker, who's at a bigger disadvantage, so we're going to try and help him. And that's why we're going to say that halacha is like this. That's not how we decide halacha. Rather, those items are given to the inheritors, because according to Rabbi Akiva, even though it was in the hands of somebody else in their domain, we view it as if they've already inherited it, and therefore nobody else can have a claim against it. And Rabbi Akiva proves this from the fact that that all of the other people, when they come to claim something from these inheritors' property, even in a case where they are able to, and we'll see about that later on in the Perek, they need to make a Shavuah, they need to make an oath, they are entitled to that money. Whereas the inheritors never need to make a shavuah that they're entitled to the money. So we see from there that the default is always to go to the inheritors. And if somebody else is going to take the money, so they're considered to be taking it from the inheritors. And therefore says Rebekah they would have the money and the items, and they have more of a right than somebody else who is owed money by their father. Mr. Gimel, so the previous Mishnah brought one scenario where the inheritors don't automatically take those items, or possibly at least according to Ritarifan, since it was in the domain of somebody else. The case of this Mishnah, the Gemara explains, is where the items were lying in a Roshus HaRabim, in a public domain, and because of that the inheritors would also not necessarily automatically inherit the pro- the items. So the Mishnah says, If he left behind produce which was detached from the ground and lying in a public domain, so according to Akiva, it would belong to the inheritors. But according to Ritarfan, this Mishnah goes according to Ritarfan, whoever takes it first acquires it. Since it has not yet come to the domain and ownership of the Yerushim, of the inheritors, they have as much right to take it and for it to become theirs. Now what happens if, let's say, the woman who is owed the kasuba, she grabbed that item, she grabbed the produce, and then when she comes to evaluate how much the produce is worth, it emerges that she took ownership of more produce than the value of her kasuba. Or if the lender who was owed money took the produce and it was worth more than he was owed. Hamaisar, the remainder which he took too much of, Rabbi Tarifan, Rabbi Tarifan says, you know, it should be given to the weaker one, and that would refer to the other person who was owed money. So if, let's say, the woman had been the one who took all the produce, so the remainder would go to the Baal Chayv, the lender who is owed money. He's considered to be weaker than the Yershim, the inheritors, because as we explained, in a general case of inheritance, they are unable to have any claim against them when it comes to movable items, metaltalin. However, again, Rebekah says, Imrachimadin, we don't have mercy in judgment, we don't look at who is most weak and disadvantaged. Rather, it should be given to the inheritors. And the truth is, according to Rebekah, not only the remaining part, but all of the produce goes straight to the inheritors. As we explained, 
Rabbein, the first part of the Mishnah is only according to Rabbi Tarifain. But according to Rabbi Akiva, we view it that as soon as the father dies, everything is already considered to be the inheritors. And therefore, if somebody else took the produce, then they did that without any right to do so. And again, he proves it from the fact that Shekulam Tzirchen Shavuah, that all of the other people who want to take something from the inheritors can only do so if they make a Shavuah, an oath that they are entitled to that money. Whereas the inheritors themselves do not need to make any oath when it comes to gaining rights over the inheritance, because the default position is that it goes straight to them. Mishadalad, Meseches Shavuos lists many types of Shavuos, types of oaths which one can make somebody else swear, or he can swear himself, and the halach is that Midraisa, one is only able to force somebody else to swear that he doesn't owe him money if he comes with a certain claim. He's saying that I know as a fact that you owe me money. If he only has a suspicion, then Midraisa, he has no right to force the other man to make a Shavuah. However, Midrabonon, the Mishnah in Meseches Shavuos, lists a number of cases where one is able to Midrabonon force him to make a Shavuah that he hasn't taken any of his money. And one such example are business partners. In order to make sure that everything is running honestly, one is allowed to make his partner swear. And one of the explanations is that when somebody is working hard for the business, he begins to rationalize for himself and give himself excuses, and he tells himself that he is entitled to more money, and is entitled to part of the other partner's share in the business. He thinks, because I'm working so hard, so I'm entitled to it. I deserve it. And because of that, there is a likelihood of him taking something which he is not really entitled to, and therefore his partner can make him swear whenever he likes that he has not taken anything which he is not entitled to. And this minister tells us that the same applies to one's wife. If one's wife works with him in business, one who sets his wife up as a shopkeeper of his shop, or he appointed her to run his financial dealings, he is able to force her to make an oath that she hasn't taken anything which doesn't belong to her, and he can do that whenever he likes, just like a regular partner. I might have thought that he can't do it if it's his wife. That would not lead to a very positive relationship, perhaps. That he has shown that he doesn't trust her. Nevertheless, the Mishnah says that, that is not the case, and just like every other partner, he is able to force her to swear. Now there is something known as Gilgal Shavuah. Gilgal Shavuah means that if I am not able, I have no valid reason to force somebody else to swear about a particular thing. However, I have got a valid reason for him to swear about something else. The concept of Gilgal Shavuah means that if I can already make him swear about a particular thing, I am also able to force him to swear about other things as well even if I haven't got a totally valid reason why he should have to swear about the other things. So according to the Tanakama, once he now has a valid reason for his wife to swear about the financial dealings and being a shopkeeper, via Gilgal Shavua he is also able to make her swear regarding the regular work which she does for her husband. As we learned earlier on in the Masechta, she needs to produce a certain amount of wool and clothes for her husband. So just to make her swear regarding that, that she hasn't taken any of his material and things like that, that you can't do by itself, because that would probably destroy their relationship. That shows a total lack of trust. However, since he has a valid reason to make her swear about this business, via Gilgal Shavuah, he can also make her swear about the regular things which a wife must do for her husband. Now, according to Rebeliezer, Rebeliezer, Rebeliezer says, even without coming to Gilgal Shavuah, he is not concerned that this will mess up their relationship. And according to Rebeliezer, every husband is able to make his wife swear, Afilu al-Pilka, 
even about her tool which she uses for the wool and for the weaving which she does for her husband, Vali Sosa and her dough, all the cooking and the household things that she does, any husband is able to make his wife swear any time that she has not taken for herself something which does not belong to her. When a woman is widowed and she comes to collect the kasuba money from her husband's inheritors, her husband's sons, let's say, the halacha is, as we're going to see later on in the parak, that she must make a shavua, an oath, that she has not yet received any of the kasuba until then. And therefore she's entitled to the full amount of the kasuba from the inheritance and from that which her husband left behind. We're going to discuss in more detail later on in this parak how a woman is able to take part of her kasuba even before she is divorced or widowed. And so when she is widowed and comes to collect the kasuba, if she wants to collect the full amount, she must swear that she has not yet received any of her kasuba money. Now the Mishnah in Gitin records how the Chachon were concerned that a widow would swear falsely because she would rationalize and reason for herself, telling herself that she's entitled to more, and that even though she did take a little bit here and there, that was in return for all the hard work which she did throughout the marriage, and she will rationalize to herself, telling herself that she is entitled to the full amount of the kasuba even though she has taken part already. And because of that, the Mishnah in Gitin says that Rabban Gamliel Hazokin instituted that instead of making a shavua, she would need to make a neder. A neder is where she forbids herself to benefit from a particular thing. And this way, it's not just a one-off oath saying whether she did or didn't receive part of the kasuba. Here, she's prohibiting herself to benefit from something. For example, she would say, I'm forbidden to eat any fruit or another benefit, if I did take part of the kasuba. And that way she is far less likely to lie, because then every time she eats a fruit, she would be violating her neder. It's not just a one-off oath. Be as it may, this mission is discussing a case where a husband makes a stipulation and an agreement with his wife that she will not need to make an oath or a neder be it the oath which we discussed in the previous Mishnah, be it the oath or the neder, which we just mentioned when it comes to a woman collecting her ksuba, he can exempt her from that shavua or neder, as long as, as it is totally clear in his statement that he is exempting her. And so the Mishnah says, Kosovo, if he wrote for her, he wrote a document saying this, alternatively he could have just said it to her. Neder shavua ein li olayich. Myself and my property do not require you to make a neder or a shavua. In such a case, any he is not able to make her make a shavua or a neder at that matter. However, if he divorced her and then she died, so as soon as she was divorced, she's entitled to her kasuba, but she didn't manage to collect it and then she died, so her inheritors have the right to collect the kasuba which she should have got. But in this case, the inheritors will have to make a shavua that as far as they are aware, the woman did not receive any of the kasuba. Now in his agreement, in his statement, saying that she doesn't need to make a shavua, he did not include those who inherit her. As well as that, she's able to sell her kasuba. So if somebody else who has the rights to her kasuba because she sold that to them, if they come to collect the kasuba, they will still need to make a shavua or a neder because his statement did not include them. So the Mishra says of a mashbiah who is your sheho, he is able to force an oath upon her inheritors, as a bonbir shusa, or upon somebody who is coming in place of her meaning somebody who bought the kasuba rights from her, because his statement did not include them. What happens if he says, Then I'm not going to make you or your inheritors or somebody who buys the kasuba from you. I'm not going to make you make a shavua or a neder. In that case, He's not able to make any of them make a shavua or a neder because they were all included in his statement. 
However, if he died and they are coming to claim the Kasuba from his inheritors, so he never included them in his statement and therefore Avil Yoshav, his inheritors must be in Aisav, 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 they can force her or her inheritors or somebody who bought the Kasuba from her, they can force them to make a Shavua that they haven't received any of the Kasuba yet before they indeed take the Kasuba money. And now the Mishnah gives the full formula where he includes everything, neither me nor my inheritors nor somebody and this is referring to somebody who buys his property as we learned earlier on a woman is able to collect the kasuba even from property which he sold to somebody else but she would need to swear but over here he is exempting her from doing that whether it be whether it be you who comes to collect the kasuba or your inheritors or somebody who bought your kasuba from you if he makes that full statement then indeed in Yochel he is not able to make Hamika Shavua or a neder he is not able to his inheritors are not able to and somebody who bought property from him is not able to make they can't make her make a Shavua or a neder nor her inheritors nor somebody who bought her kasuba from her.